You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them bowed to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought so that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later, you can continue on. Yes, they replied. Do as you've said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, Quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds and milk, as well as the calf that he had prepared, and set them before the men. He served them as they ate under the tree. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There, in the tent, he answered. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time. Your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed to herself. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. The men got up from there and looked out over Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. And their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the crime that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. The men turned from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in this city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of 50 righteous people who are in it? You cannot possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham answered, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Then he spoke to him again, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry, and I will speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Then he said, since I ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. He replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. And then he said, let my Lord not be angry, and I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is truth. Lord, there are are things 
in your word that we need to hear, we need to see, we need your spirit to come and, and help us listen and help us understand and help us to do the things that you have given us to do. Um, God, we could not do any of these things without the gift of your spirit. And so, Lord, we, we trust you now with these moments um, and we give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I, I hope you are finding this study of the book of Genesis, and particularly this uh, zooming in on the life of Abraham, uh, to be helpful. Um, I, I've really been challenged along the way in preparing these uh, messages, and I hope that you have as well. I hope you come away from our times together with a clearer picture of who God is and who he's called you to be in his grace, that he's adopted you into his royal family, that we are children of Abraham by faith in his son, Jesus. So this chapter is longer than the last few, and it, it's the first part, chapter 18 and chapter 19 of Genesis go together. They're kind of parts one and two of the story of Sodom, the story of Sodom. It's a tragic story. Uh, you might remember Sodom from chapter 13. It's the place where Abram's nephew Lot chose to settle. It was a good land, lots of water there, lots of good place for farming. Um, but then Sodom, we see this all the way back in chapter 13, verse 13. Uh, in spite of all the goodness there, was infamous as being an evil place. The people who lived there were known for, it says, sinning immensely against the Lord. And here we see in chapter 18, their sin was extremely serious. There's a few bad people that we read about in Scripture, but these guys are described as immensely bad, and we'll find out more about that next week. Uh, this week, the camera is going to be focused a little bit more on Abraham, uh, Lot's uncle, who is the father of God's people, God's covenant people, God's nation. And we learn from him kind of the antidote, what, what is needed to avoid becoming like Sodom and its extremely evil people. Um, remember last week, at the beginning of chapter 17, God comes to Abraham specifically and says this. He says, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. Live in my presence and be blameless. There's a connection between living in God's presence, knowing who he is, knowing who we are as his people, and then doing his will, being blameless, living blamelessly. The more time you spend with God, the more time you spend it listening to his word on your own and together, the more you become like him. The more your thinking and your desires, your words and actions start to line up with the will and the character of God. Some people tell me uh, the more time that I spend living here uh, in Adelaide and hanging out with people from this great city, um, the more I start to sound like I'm from here. I don't believe that, but some people tell me this. You, you can tell me later. Um, a better illustration of how we become more like God, how we come to live blamelessly, uh, comes from primary school science class. I don't know if you ever did that experiment as a kid with celery, and you, you stick it in a, in a glass of just a little bit of colored water, and you watch as the color begins to be absorbed into the celery. That's a little bit like what the Bible tells us of how we become like God. It's time, we spend time with him. We spend time attending to him. 
and his ways, his character begins to be absorbed into our lives. The more time you spend in his presence, attending to his word in prayer, the more you know him, and the more you know him, you become like him. I want to show you this dynamic this morning and how it plays out in the life of Abraham and how it can play out in your life as well. The more you know God, the more you become like him. In chapter 18 of Genesis, these aspects of God's character are particularly apparent. His generosity, his power, his righteousness, and his compassion. And when we really know God for who he is, we then become generous. We become hopeful. We become righteous. And we become compassionate. Let's look at generosity first. Knowing God makes us generous people. Knowing God makes us generous people. Chapter 18 starts out with, here's Abraham. He's having his midday rest at the entrance of his tent. This was probably in the summer, and it got really hot, just like it does here in the summer. It's probably 40 degrees outside in the sun. And, and in the culture of that day, you don't work when it's 40 degrees in the heat of the sun. You have a little siesta. You have a little rest time in the middle of the day, and that's what Abraham was doing, sitting at the entrance of his tent. His tent there was built, he, or he pitched it underneath these large oak trees, the oaks of Mamre, we see that back in, again back in chapter 13. And, and I don't know if you remember this, but I pointed this out back then that these trees were significant because before Abram got there and put his tent there, that was a, it was, they would have been the site of a pagan altar. This is where people would come and pray or and worship false gods, false idols. And so when Abram pitches his tent there and he builds an altar to the one true God in this place, he's kind of claiming this territory as belonging to the real God, the only God there is. And this is where his tent has continued for, to be for all this time. In verse 1, it says that the Lord appeared to Abraham at the entrance of his tent. This is the sixth time in the life of Abraham in Genesis, where the Lord is either spoken to or appeared to Abraham. So God clearly has a plan for this man's life. He keeps showing up to confirm it to him. There's a bit of controversy as to what's going on here. In verse 2, it says there are three men standing near Abraham's tent, uh, which, as I read one commentator, said is the Middle Eastern equivalent of like ringing the doorbell. They were, they were intentionally there. They weren't just happened to wander by. They were intentionally there seeking Abraham. They were kind of knocking on the door, if you like. The question that we're meant to ask at this point, then, is who are these three men? Who are they? Um, any, I don't know if any of you read early church theology. Maybe, maybe not. Heard of a guy called Augustine. Augustine argued, and he's not the only one, argued that these three men are an early manifestation, representation of the Trinity, God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Um, the Trinity doesn't usually show up in the Old Testament, but we do believe that the Bible is a unified book. We believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God didn't become a Trinity when Jesus was, uh, came to earth. God it was, is, and will always be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Augustine says this, we're meant to see the Trinity here. Um, now, I don't, however, um, believe this to be a manifestation of the Trinity, and here's why. We're meant to see chapters 18 and 19 as one story. 
as one story. And if you, you read ahead into chapter 19, you'll see that two of the three men go down to Sodom to investigate exactly what's going on there. And in chapter 19, the writer Moses refers to these two men as angels, not as the Lord. I refer to as the Lord here in chapter 18, but as angels um, in chapter 19. So I would argue that what we're seeing here with these three men is we're seeing, two, we're seeing the Lord, an appearance of God, um, what's called sometimes in fancy words a theophany, and then two of his servants, two of his messengers that are accompanying him. So this appearance of God to Abraham in a physical body who is eating and drinking, it points forward to the day when the word will become flesh, when Jesus, God the Son, will come and take on flesh permanently, and he will eat and drink. And he comes not only to deliver the message of good news, but he also carries out the plans of the good news in his own body. So moments like this in Genesis 18, even though I said this isn't the Trinity, it still should be preparing our hearts and our minds for what is to come in the unfolding of God's plan, um, that eventually Jesus is going to come to earth as a man. The main thing I want us to see in these first eight verses of Genesis 18 is just how Abraham responds to this appearance of God and the angels. It's, it's not quite clear exactly when he recognizes this to be a divine appearance, um, whether he does that or not, um, straight away, what we see from this encounter is that Abraham is radically generous. He, he gives us an example of what real hospitality looks like. He, in verse 2, it says he runs to meet his guests. And remember, it's 40 degrees. He's 99 years old. And in that day, in that weather, you don't run. You don't run. It would be considered undignified. Uh, you get sweaty, but he runs to meet his guests. Why? He does that to honor them, to honor them. He considers them, their presence, honorable. He is honored by their presence, and he's giving them this maximum honor. He bows at their feet, and then he invites them to have a rest there underneath the shade of the oak tree. He says at first he offers them just a little bit of water and a little bit of bread, but then in verse 6 to, eight, 6 to 8, he goes and talks to his wife, Sarah, and his servants, and he tells them to bake bread with fine flour. He slaughters a choice calf. He feeds them with curds and milk, which is, this is like a luxury spread that he puts out for them. And the whole time Abraham's standing there, he's not eating with them, but he's waiting on them. It's the picture of an extremely generous, lavish host. This uh, passage, a lot of uh, commentators think that the writer of Hebrews um, in chapter 13, where we get this verse, um, chapter 13, verse 2, says, Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Um, a lot of writers say that the, the writer of Hebrews was thinking of this story uh, when he wrote that. Um, and so he clearly is turning to us readers and saying, you know, one day you, you might be showing hospitality. You might be doing something ordinary and generous. You might be honoring somebody. You might be serving somebody. And just like Jesus said this as well, you, what, what you do in serving and loving and caring for the least of these among you, you do to me. That's what is going on here. He says this, this, this hospitality is meant to be a habit of the Christian heart and the Christian home. You know, sometimes I'm ashamed of my own lack of generosity, and I'm, I've been blown away by the generosity of others. 
even by people who don't know God, people who don't have a lot of time to give, don't have a lot of resources to offer, and yet are so generous. And I think, like Jesus, that if people who are lost and evil and poor and time poor know how to be hospitable, how much more should this be a part of the fabric of we who know how generous God has been to us? Why was Abraham so generous? Wasn't it because he had been spending time in the presence of God, living in his presence? God, who was so generous to him, who just kept showing up in his life again and again and giving him promise after promise after promise after promise. He'd been learning to trust God for what he needed, so he wasn't clinging on to his own time and his own stuff. He gave Lot, his nephew, the best land. He, he knew that he was blessed by God so that he could bless others. Knowing God, see, makes us generous, makes us hospitable. Knowing God also makes us hopeful. And we see this a little bit further in the, in the chapter. After, it, after the meal's finished, um, Abraham's guests uh, start a little chat. Um, where's your wife? Where's Sarah? And uh, this time, I don't know if you remember the, one of the first times we see Sarah and Abraham, a little interaction. He is quite afraid of what these strangers, are, how they're going to treat her because she's beautiful. And so he lies and says that it's his sister and comes up with this whole crazy scheme. Um, but this time, he, he answers the question. He says, well, she's, she's in the tent. Um, so now the Lord confirms this prophecy. that we've, We saw this last um, week in, in chapter 17. He says, in one year, one year's time, Abraham, when you're 100, um, you're going to have a son. But now he says the same thing again. In a year, when we come back, you're going to have a son. Why does he say it again? Well, probably because Sarah is meant to hear this. He, only, he spoke to Abraham the first time. Now Sarah can hear. For her benefit, he says, um, I'm going to give you the timeline. I'm gonna give, you know, he'd already named him Isaac back in chapter 17. And Sarah's listening, and this time she, like Abraham, had done the same thing. She laughs to herself because she is a woman of science. Because I'm 90 years old. She's past menopause. It is not possible for her to fall pregnant. And Abraham, remember, he also laughed when he heard the promise. And that's why God gives him the name Isaac, because his name means laughter. Verse 13, the Lord catches Sarah out. He asks Abraham why she laughed. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Why? What's so funny? It's, a, it's, a, it's actually kind of a funny scene. Um, it's a rhetorical question, though, that comes up a few times in the Bible. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Sarah needs to hear this question for herself. She needs to wrestle with this question in her own heart, just like we do. Now, Sarah's afraid because God's, God asks why, why she laughed. She said, I didn't laugh. She denies it. It's like, yeah, he did. He did. She, I mean, she lies to God. And And... You know, I, I don't know if you can think of other times in the Bible where some people lie directly to God. Um, what happens? Think about Acts chapter 5. You have the case of um, Ananias and Sapphira. They lie about the, the size of their, uh, the amount of money they got for the land they sold. And what happens? They lie. It says, Peter says, you didn't lie to me. You lied to the Holy Spirit. And boom, they're dead. They drop dead in the front of the church. Um, here, Sarah says, I didn't laugh, and she did, and, and yet she lives. 
Because God has a plan for her life, and he has determined that she is going to be the mother of his people. The focus of this encounter is on God's power to bring life from the dead. People who are as good as dead, as it says in Hebrews, of Abraham and Sarah's bodies. This is not about human faith. And I say this because sometimes passages like this, we can misuse them. When we get to questions like, is anything impossible for the Lord? We sort of twist that in our minds, think, is anything impossible for people who have really big faith? But that's not the question. The focus isn't meant to be on us and our, the strength of our own faith. The, the, the focus is meant to be on the Lord. See, this, thing, this whole idea can be almost kind of weaponized, and we don't mean to do this. Um, I don't know if, if you or someone you know has ever struggled with something really, really tough, like infertility, um, or other things that, take a lo- that involve a lot of waiting and waiting and hoping and praying and tears. Um, you, you, you m- might be called to wait on the Lord and have faith in God who can do the impossible. But this is not saying that, therefore, if it doesn't happen for you, therefore, it's something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with your faith. You just need to have a little bit more faith. And as soon as you, your faith meter gets to, the, you know, to where it needs to be, then, boom, that thing is going to happen. No. No, 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 no. The Bible does not teach that. What God does here is a once-off miracle that's part of his plan for the nations. This is not meant to be something that we are, 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 this is not the secret that we're meant to unlock to get the thing that we want. No, that's not what this is about. This is the, God's miracle of bringing life out of a dead womb so that no human gets the glory for what he does. No human is going to get the glory. This is a miracle of undeserved grace. So please don't make this about gritting our teeth and filling up our faith tanks. No, this is about the power of God reversing the curse of death, which he will do again in the resurrection of Jesus. And he does for every single one of us who he has called out of death and into life in his son. So the basis of our faith, the basis of our hope is not the strength of our own faith when the chips are down. The basis of our hope is the resurrection of the Son of God, which is a one-time event in history. It means that even when the chips are down, resurrection is coming. It's coming. Our hope is, is not only in this life, but in the new creation. In the new creation where death and disease and disappointment and fear are gone forever. And that doesn't mean we don't ask for God for miracles now. We do. We'll see Abraham do that shortly. It just means that hope for us is not tied to a particular outcome. Hope in the Lord, the only one who has defeated death. You know, if you're like me, your, your mood and your, your hope can be affected so greatly by what is happening or what's in the diary or what's not in the diary. You know, what is it that I have to look forward to today or tomorrow or next year? What can I afford to do today, tomorrow, next year? What do I get to brag about to my friends? And that we, we put our hope in that. But that's not Christian hope. It's not lasting hope. It's not... Sure hope. Christian hope doesn't come from anything that you or I can brag about. Christian hope comes only from boasting 
in the Lord and what he's done. That, that's the only thing that will never change. You can do that from anywhere. You can do that in any season. You can do that from a hospital bed. And the more we get to know God, the more we attend to his word, the more hopeful we are. Knowing God makes us hopeful people. So knowing God makes us generous and hopeful, also righteous. Let's look at this in verses 16 to 19. This is the very thing God told Abram to be, blameless. Live before me in my presence and be blameless. So the three visitors now, they get up from the meal and they walk across Abram's, well, I can't call it property, but the area where his tent is, to a spot and they're looking over a valley, the valley where Sodom is. And Abraham is now some distance behind them. So you see the three conferring together as to whether or not they should tell Abram, let him in on what they're about to do, what's about to happen in the immediate future. Now, clearly, they've decided to include him, which is a sign that they consider Abraham to be a prophet. The prophets are those that, you know, God includes in on what he's about to do. They repeat this blessing from chapter 12. They say, you know, Abraham is going to become a great and powerful nation, and all the other nations are going to be blessed through him. But then how is that going to happen? How is this blessing going to unfold? Well, you've got to trace the logic of verse 19. Verse 19 is very important. God says, he says, I've chosen Abraham so that he will teach his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. In other words, being, living blamelessly. Or as the Bible says elsewhere, Romans 12, by being conformed to the mind of God and not to the ways of the world. Look at verse 19. It says, this becoming righteous, this becoming just, this living blamelessly, he says, this is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. So Abraham's job here is to teach his children, teach Isaac and to teach everybody in his household what it means to live righteously, to live blamelessly. And as Abraham's household and his descendants live a certain way, they develop a particular character, a particular life about them. They reflect God because they know him so well. That is how Abraham's family, his nation, his descendants are going to become a blessing to all the other nations. And this is a really important word for us today. What we do amongst ourselves in the church matters for the world. It matters for our community. It matters for the people around us, for our wider families. Teaching our children what happens here and what happens in your home as we teach our kids the gospel, as we instruct them in the ways of the Lord. It's not just about our family and having a a family that looks very Christianly on the outside, like that we put in a sort of a museum and, oh, isn't that nice? No, that is the way that the world knows that Jesus is real, that he is alive, that the gospel is true by the way that we love one another, by the way that we behave, by the, by, by the outlook that we have, by the things that we hope in. We don't hope in the stuff of the world. That's not what gets excited about. That's not what we brag about. We boast in the Lord. And as we learn to do that as a people, as we know God and become like him, that ripples out. That has massive impact on the world. It's so critical to our mission, the way it was for Abraham and the people of Israel. 
The way we love and care for each other is meant to stand out in a world that's full of fake love with lots of strings attached. And when people see the love and the justice and the mercy and the righteousness of God's people, they know that we've been with him. We are the celery stalks, if you like, that are stained red with the love of Jesus. Knowing God makes us righteous people, which makes us a blessing to the people around us. All right, in the final section of this chapter, knowing God makes us generous, hopeful, righteous people, also makes us compassionate people. And I want to show you this from the last section here. It's a window into the heart of Abraham, who is coming to know the ju- both the justice and the mercy of God. And what is going on here in this whole sort of interaction between God, you know, will I find 50 people, what if was the 50 righteous people, are you going to destroy the whole city? And then, he, you know, 45, 40, 30, he kind of bargains them down. What's, what's going on here? Is this sort of a bargaining match between God and Abraham? And Abraham finally kind of twists God's arm to be more merciful than he otherwise would be. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. What, what is going on here is that Abraham is doing what all of us are called to do, and that is he is investigating for himself. He's studying the character of God. He, he, he's looking for the limits of God's justice. Where, where's the boundary? Where's the, where the, where's the limits of his mercy? How far is his compassion actually going to go? And that's what we see here. And that's what, in a sense, all of us have to do. We all, as we study God in Scripture, as we experience the way that he loves and leads and cares and, and teaches us, we, we learn things about what he's really like. When we say, we say God is just, but is he just in this situation? We say that God loves, but does he love me when I have sinned against him? Like, we have to kind of test the boundaries if you like, of God's character. So here's what's going on. He, he sends, God sends these two angelic beings down to Sodom to investigate the cry that's come up to him. It's not because God doesn't know. God knows and sees all things. Why does he send them down? He sends them as eyewitnesses to establish their guilt. This is a sign that when God sends judgment on a people, he does it very slowly. He does it very carefully. He's slow to anger and full of love and compassion. Even Sodom, which we will see next week, there is horrific evil, injustice, wickedness. It is the worst place you could imagine. You would never want to live there. You wouldn't want your kids to grow up there. It's just an awful, awful place. And yet, even in the light of such evil and wickedness, God is slow to anger and full of love and compassion. And he sends these two, because later on in the Law of Moses, he'll say that for anybody to receive the death penalty, there has to be two eyewitnesses. This is not God just blowing off in a, a blowing off steam and deciding to send fire and brimstone because he's in a bad mood. No, this is, this is a long investigation, careful establishment of guilt. In, verses 20, in verse 22, after the two angels leave, Abraham's left there with the Lord. It says, God's revealed to him what he's going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to destroy them for their sin. And so now in verse 23, Abraham, it says, steps forward. And I want to quote him here again because his words are important. He says, God, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
And then verse 25, you could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? You see, Abraham, he's wanting to trace out the heart of God. What is your justice really like? What, is, like, what does it mean that you're just? What does it mean that you're righteous? How does this really work? He asked God if he would spare the city for 50, and then he gets him down to 10. God reassures Abraham. He says, no, on the account of 10, I will spare the whole city. Now, here's a spoiler alert, and we'll see this next week. God does not find 10 righteous people in Sodom. Next week, I'll tell you how many. It's less than 10. But Abraham's purpose in this exercise is to intercede not just for his nephew Lot, who lives there, but for the entire Canaanite nation. Remember, he is the prophet who God said, I will bless you, and then you will become a blessing to all nations. This is Abraham carrying out this mission to be a blessing to the, this horrible, horrible, wicked place. I don't, I don't know if any of you know the story of Jonah. I'd love to preach through Jonah sometime, maybe next year. But it, this is the op, this, he is being the anti-Jonah here. Jonah, if you remember, God tells him, go and preach uh, to this wicked city of Nineveh and get them to repent. And Jonah says, no, thank you. And he runs away because he doesn't want them to repent. He doesn't want God to be merciful to them. He wants God to rain down fire and brimstone on that city. See how Abraham is, is so different here. He, he's want, Abraham is not hungry for fire and brimstone. He's hungry for mercy. This is a sign that he's been with God. He understands that mercy triumphs over judgment. He understands that God is slow to anger, that he's full of grace and compassion because he's been with him. If you want to become compassionate, you want to become merciful, you've got to be with God who is mercy, who is compassion. Now, we, we see this, that we, we, we know that God is just, that he does punish the guilty, that he does spare the innocent, but we can never have real justice without mercy, and we can never have real mercy without justice. Compassion requires that we speak up for victims of injustice, and there were lots of victims in Sodom. But Abraham pleads with God for them. So knowing God, knowing what, is like, what he's like, that's how our minds begin to be conformed and transformed. That's how we become useful in the world. That's how we become generous, hopeful, righteous, compassionate. You want to be a generous mom or dad. I know I do, and I'm not good. <laughs> but you've got to reflect on the generous kindness of God. You're going to be a hopeful church member. We'll spend time worshiping the God who brings life from the dead. You want to be a righteous co-worker with integrity, not self-righteous, but a person who is humble. You want to spend time with Jesus, who is perfect righteousness. You want to be a compassionate friend. You look to God, who, who loves mercy and does justice for all who've been oppressed by evil. See, this is not just a message telling you what you need to do to be a better person. This moment in Abraham's life, it comes at a critical juncture for him. Because if he doesn't learn what God is like, 
His faith and his mission is going to fail. He has to have these regular appearances, these regular encounters with God if he's going to keep going on the journey. I think one of the most beautiful pictures in this whole chapter is this picture of Abram running up, 99-year-old man, running up to these visitors in the hot sun who showed up on his doorstep, men that turned out to be the very presence of God. But here's the thing. Because there's a day that's coming in your future, in our future, and it won't be long, where the tables of this scene are going to be completely turned. We get a little preview in the story of Jesus. The night before Jesus died, Jesus gets up from the table, and he does something that's a bit embarrassing and unthinkable as well. He takes off his outer robe, he wraps a towel around himself, he pours water into a basin, and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples and dry them with a towel. And in Genesis, you see Abraham, who's the representative father of God's people, he's washing the feet of angels. But when the Son of God comes to you, he washes your feet. This is the same Jesus who said, I am going away to what? To prepare a place for you to get a meal ready. He's literally right now with the Father setting the table and cooking the meal for you and for me, for us. He even tells us what's on the menu. It's Isaiah chapter 25. He says, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. That's what you and I have to look forward to. And anyone who comes to know Jesus, when you come to know him and the future that he's secured for you, that's when you start to become like him. That's when the people closest to you know that you've been with him. And brothers and sisters, let's lean in to know him now because the meal is almost ready. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this hope that we have. Lord, we need the hope of that meal. We need to remember that that is our future so that when things are really hard now, we don't despair. When we are struggling with fear or doubt, temptation, Lord, we remember that nothing is impossible for you. That sin that we have troubles shaking off, that doubt that we, doesn't seem to go away, that thing that we need you so desperately to provide. We know that nothing is impossible for you. And so we look to you and we look to what Jesus has done. He defeated death. Lord, would you increase our faith? Not so that we can boast in our own faith, but so that we be people who boast in you, whose lives boast in you, that you might be glorified. God, confirm that to us as we come to the table today. Lord, would you be glorified and would you give us joy? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.